Hi guys, welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I have a very exciting episode with some fantastic people, including Dr. Mike, the leader of Team 4 ROM, and we have Milo Wolf, who is currently doing his PhD in essentially range of motion and how that pertains to muscle hypertrophy, at least that's what we're very interested about here. And we have his right-hand man, Dr. Pack, as well. And these three gentlemen discuss the recent literature that's been coming out supporting potentially the role of training at longer muscle lengths for hypertrophy and how practically we might apply that as trainees who are interested in maximizing our hypertrophic adaptations. And Mike asks Milo and Dr. Pack some really interesting questions as a really good and productive back and forth. And maybe your perspectives will shift on the topic after listening to this, or maybe they won't. It was a really, really good discussion. I enjoyed it a lot. And uh, hopefully we can do some more of these. And as a reminder, guys, it's coming to that time of year where maybe you're interested in a mini cut. Maybe you want to drop some quick pounds to potentiate some more massing or just feel a little bit lighter on your feet coming into summer. Well, we have the mini cup movement is our group coaching course here at Revive Stronger, where you can get your training, nutrition all taken care of for a really reasonable price, considering everything that you're going to get for it. If you're interested in that, that's always going to be linked in our bio. You can check that out if you want to at revivestronger.com as well if you're listening and you don't want to go into the description and find a link. We appreciate you as always, but without further ado, let's get into the chat. Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and today I have a very exciting roundtable for those of you visually uh, tuning in, visually tuning in. That sounds really odd, doesn't it? Uh, we have uh, three gents here. So we have uh, Mike Isratel, which obviously all you guys will know. We have Dr. Pack, who has been on the podcast a couple of times as well. And obviously Milo Wolf. And these guys uh, are going to be talking about range of motion. Uh, I think a lot of the listeners will know um, a lot of these guys' perspectives, actually, because if you've been following them, you've probably been getting a picture of that. Obviously, this is Milo's kind of arena in terms of your PhD. And Mike is very well known, I think, on the channel for having his perspective or at least having team full ROM there. And we've spoken about range of motion at length. So I think probably some people wanted to see this discussion happen. And I think it's just a, a really cool chat to be able to have. So I, I'm grateful to have you guys all here. And I'm going to start with uh, actually, I guess, passing it over to Milo, because I think you're probably the, the person most qualified to do this, is to just kind of give the lay of the land of the, the recent literature in a summarized form, because obviously you've spoken about it at length with me a, a few times here in terms of range of motion as it pertains to hypertrophy in your eyes at the moment. Where, where are we seeing that? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, I want to say thank you to Steve for organizing it and Mike for coming on. Um, funnily enough, I think being involved with Renaissance periodization and helping you guys out some, some stuff with some stuff at the time was kind of why I got interested with range of motion in the first place, um, which eventually led to me starting the PhD and looking at this. But to give a brief overview on what the evidence right now says about range of motion and hypertrophy, um, a few years ago, we only had a handful of studies on the topic. And at the time, when you compared partial range of motion to full range of motion for hypertrophy, it looked like for the upper body, we had four studies, and it was very consistently the case that a full range of motion appeared to produce better hypertrophy than a partial range of motion. Um, and the lower body, on the other hand, it was more a case of we only had two studies. One study found a benefit in favor of, sorry, other way around. In the upper body, we didn't have much evidence, only two studies, one showing a benefit in favor of partial range of motion. 
and one showing a be no benefit in either case. And then talk about the tricep mid-range study. Correct. Yes. Um, <laughs> okay. Indeed. And then in the lower body, we had four studies, generally all studies showing favor to full range of motion for hypertrophy. Now that was in 2020, that systematic review was performed by Schoenfeld and colleagues. Since then, there's been more evidence coming out. Um, in particular, about a year ago now, I published my own meta-analysis on the topic, and it looks like a few caveats exist to those general findings. Specifically, when it comes to performance adaptations, it looks like specificity applies, which means if you're a powerlifter and you want to get a better one rep max in your squat, and you only squat to powerlifting depth, you're likely better off squatting mostly to depth and no more or no less than that if you want to maximize adaptations. So it does seem like performance adaptations are range of motion specific. When it comes to hypertrophy, and it's worth noting that for all outcomes, whether that was muscle hypertrophy, strength, power, sport, even body fat, it's important to note that one, we didn't have a ton of data for some of these outcomes like body fat, but when you did group outcomes that way, you saw that a full range of motion outperformed the partial range of motion by a very small um, effect size, right? So trivial effect size typically, but all, for all outcomes, a full range of motion appeared superior to a partial range of motion. Where it gets more interesting to me, besides the fact that performance adaptations are range of motion specific, is that when you delineate or categorize partial repetitions or partial ranges of motion as being either performed at shorter average muscle lengths or at longer average muscle lengths, it looks like it's different for hypertrophy. Um, specifically, most of the studies so far comparing a full range of motion to a partial range of motion have used a partial range of motion at shorter muscle lengths. So for a squat, for example, you can think comparing a full past parallel squat to a half squat, where in the half squat, the average muscle length being trained for the quads, for the glutes, for the actors is shorter than it would be for a full range of motion squat. So yes, you're comparing a partial range of motion to a full range of motion, but you're specifically comparing a partial range of motion at shorter muscle lengths to a full range of motion. Now, because of the way muscle length might play a role in this sort of equation, I guess, the muscle length being trained through with a partial range of motion may influence how good it is for hypertrophy. And so in that meta-analysis, we also subdivided partial ranges of motion as being either performed at shorter or at longer muscle lengths. And it looks like when a partial range of motion is being performed at longer muscle lengths on average than a full range of motion, it may actually be better for hypertrophy by a small effect size than a full range of motion. Now, that meta-analysis came out a while ago now, and there's been more studies since then. So we now have a total of four studies comparing a full range of motion to lengthened partials or lower muscle length partial range of motion. Um, <clears throat> and generally, from my perspective at least, the evidence is certainly leaning in favor of lengthened partials. So we have four studies, um, one by Workhausen and colleagues, which was the only one that didn't find a difference in hypertrophy between a full range of motion and lengthened partials. But then all the other three studies found a benefit in favor of lengthened partials over full range of motion hypertrophy. So when you consider that one study out of four found no difference in hypertrophy and three found a benefit in favor of length and partials, while we don't have a ton of evidence, for sure, like I'm already to say, you know, it's for sure an open and shut case that length and partials are better for hypertrophy than for range of motion. I think the evidence is certainly leaning that way. And I think you can make a case that at the very least, you're unlikely to miss out on much if you're doing length and partials for hypertrophy at this point. And it's potentially the case that you're actually gaining something for hypertrophy by doing length and partials instead of full range motion. So I think that's kind of where the evidence is now. There's some kind of 
niche findings like maybe how muscle length being trained impacts regional hypertrophy as opposed to just whole muscle hypertrophy, like whether there's differences there and stuff like that. But that is broadly speaking the lay of the land as it relates to range of motion and muscle hypertrophy. Fantastic. Yeah, I think that was really well explained in terms of the perspectives of where we'd come from and why it's become such an interesting thing recently is because there's so much more research now looking at the kind of partial range of motion that seems to be important within the full range of motion. And uh, that's why now potentially you're seeing people using some partial range of motion within their programming or even kind of considering it. And I guess, uh, Mike, if uh, I can ask you, has the new literature shifted any of your perspectives, uh, any of the way that you uh, kind of approach your exercises? And yeah, do you have any differing views on the lay of the land versus uh, Milo there? I guess, including your experience as well. Yeah, well, that's a good question. So I think that the new literature has shifted my perspective in making me more confident in making certain training decisions that I previously only intuited would be a good idea, but I had unanswered questions about. For example, if I'm doing wrist curls, which I actually did earlier today, and I do them on a bench laying down, but I'll just show for people watching this, like imagine the gravity points that way. <laughs> There's a bench here and the bench ends here and my wrist is off. Dumbbell wrist curls. Uh, I would all, you know, I do them where I have a dumbbell and I lean all the way back into the stretch and then I come up for a peak contraction and I come back down. I ran into some issues where I know exactly when I pass parallel, but it gets really hard to know if you're meeting a full peak contraction at the top because there's no lockout at the joint at the top. And also, it's um, I knew that in order to get the peak contraction here, I still had a ton of reps left at the bottom and I was just stopping because I just failed to get to the full. So there's a tracking issue there. And there is a potentially leaving stimulus on the table issue. And also with a dumbbell, here to here was felt great. Here to here, this part here actually was bothering my wrists. But I didn't know that I was confident enough to excise a part of the range of motion before that was just seemingly like off on a bunch of stuff because I was like, well, you know, I do know that there's a general literature about motor unit activation and regional hypertrophy that says that some motor units are more active here, some here, and some here. So you're getting a more holistic hypertrophy response with hitting all the range. But ever since being availed to the literature and growing literature that says that lengthened partials are actually really good, based on my stimulus to fatigue ratio proxies, also winning the here to here is better than going all the way actually just recently stopped doing wrist curls all the way back. Oh, sorry, all the way back, I do. I just stop when it just passes parallel. Everything feels great, and I go, and I just do it. Insane pumps, insane everything, results are great. I just don't worry about this part. Another thing is calf raises. I used to spend an inordinate amount of time making sure I really locked out at the top and held it. And now, actually, one of the recent pieces of literature is on calf raises directly. And like, if I just get to above the sticking point, and then come back down into that slow, deep stretch and pause at the bottom, and then through the sticking point. And again, I don't have to worry about that top part. I can concentrate on the part that's the most important. So that 
acknowledge that if anything, the research is seeing showing that the lengthened portion is the most hypertrophic and on balance might even be more hypertrophic than full range of motion. It has put me at ease that in exercises that there is an obvious inconvenience of trying to do full range of motion that uh, in no seeming upsides other than the theoretical full motor unit stuff, which I'll get to in a bit more later, at least for me, I was able to say, you know what, uh, I don't have to worry about this. And based on my proxies, pumps, soreness, et cetera, that lengthened, more lengthened partial-ish style of training or not chasing that last bit of ROM that seems to be bad as far, my stimulus to fatigue ratios have improved drastically. So that has been an awesome personal take home that I have at least, look, I'm not willing to bet, and I'll say as much in a bit, I'm not willing to bet this is for sure the case just yet. It's not enough research, and I have some questions that I'd love to ask uh, Pac and Milo about the details. But I'm certainly much more relaxed about if the stimulus to fatigue ratio says it's great and the length and partials are everywhere more convenient. Yeah, I'm not so worried about a super full range of motion. And just because I almost certainly forget to say this, Team Full ROM was always a tongue-in-cheek name. We would never name something for a deeply held belief because we're all scientifically minded people. Jared and myself and, and Trevor Fulbright, who runs the group, it's all tentative. We are not making an ideological commitment to full range of motion. The reason it's called Team Forum is because we generally have a very uh, high range of motion in our training, mostly because we go deep on things where other people don't. We're not known for squeezing lockouts or something like that extra or something like that. We're known for never skimping on the depth. So the Team Forum is kind of a shot at the bros who are like just not hardcore enough to go deep enough. And so, yeah, there's, I've seen a lot of tags on social media like, oh, oh, Team Full Rom's in trouble. Like, I assure you we're not. And worst thing, we'll just change the name of the group to anything else, <laughs> the same group. So just to make sure people know, I do not have an ideological commitment to the full, to full range of motion, which, by the way, what an insane thing to be ideologically committed to. Like, that's the, this is what I'm going to, the, the hill I'm going to die on is like, no, the last part is everything. Like, get out of here. So it's, it's, it's all good on that front. Yeah, I wanted to to add a, a big reason behind doing this and uh, talking with Steve about arranging this podcast is um, to actually get that message out of there, out there, because we we made a few posts. Obviously, this is Milo's work, and I've uh, been blessed to see the literature up close uh, before everybody else, because I'm friends with Milo and we're at the same uh, university as well. Um, but as we would make posts, uh, we'd also see the odd, hey, full ROM tag and team full ROM this and team full ROM that. And I just wanted people to be clear on the fact that we're all team science rather than, like, I couldn't care less as well if it's lengthened uh, partials or full ROM. The data is the data. The one thing, though, that I do find interesting is that, um, and that's that's a general comment, it's not directed at you, Mike, is that given the amount of data that we have on the topic, I don't feel like it has gotten um, enough attention or it has been met with much more skepticism than other uh, concepts that we we have and we we treat as a sort of common knowledge rather than common belief. Um, so I thought that today would be an awesome idea to have this back and forth and so that people can refer to this episode and be like, okay, this is where we stand on uh, as far as range of motion and hypertrophy and strength go. You know, I've noticed that too. I think there's a lot of uh, full range of motion. People have this attachment to it. 
um, almost as an ASMR thing. We're just making sure you feel that happy feeling inside going all the way down and feel that happy feeling inside of accomplishment and being able to green checkbox the rep as, yes, I locked it out. That makes people feel good. And they uh, also, there's, a, I think, a moral element where if you don't do the whole for range of motion, you're cheating, you're lazy, you're trying to get out of work. And they layer that in to this almost like religious thing where like when you gotta hit full rom bro and it's like i was just trying to grow muscle man i don't give a fuck what rom i have to hit just did whatever grows me listen if the jay cutler back in the late 90s well he actually was actually really good about stuff whatever whoever bodybuilder branch warren all reps in the mid-range if that's what 100 i i already got barkley like dog and uh and then you yell at your cameraman to get out of the way that was my favorite part of that one documentary um if those little partial pulse reps were the way to get the most jacked with the least injuries, that's exactly what I would be doing in all of my training and proselytizing people about it. So it doesn't matter what's the most effective. I will do what is the most effective thing. And as a science communicator, which is really my real job, I will put it out there to the world. So it is no zero attachments to full ROM. And I think a lot of people do have those attachments. And uh, I don't like to be on the religious side of that where we're like, well, it's a full ROM or nothing. It's like, no, no, for tentatively for a long time, the literature was in full range of motion is the default best. And I think now, I, I'll say later, I'll just shut up in a sec. I think there's a new default best that has a little bit more nuance to it. So I'd love to share mm -hmm. that in a bit. Just to just to add to that, sorry, sorry, Steve. That I think there's a bit of uh, FOMO going on with uh, with people uh, when it comes to partials at long muscle lengths versus full ROM because they're like, um, there's the, the the word partial obviously there, so that may induce a bit of a negative feeling or uh, misconception that oh, I'm doing partial a partial movement, I may not get the full gains. Um, similarly to you know minimum dose training and so on and so forth. Uh, but yeah, these, those were all great points uh, that you raised. I see it. My personal experience with it has been a bit like my introduction to if it fits your macros or macros in general versus foods and how you have to eat kind of clean foods to see a certain result. And slowly I learned, oh, actually there's these things called macros and I need to hit maybe certain numbers and fit them within a, a certain goal. And I can, I slowly like let myself have like some cereal or something rather than oats. And slowly I was like, oh, actually I can see great results. Like as long as I hit my kind of what I need to hit and maybe even better results because now I can adhere and I don't know, people don't binge on the weekend and all these sort of things. And then I think that's similar with kind of full range of motion to, to partial range of motion where I was like, I needed some convincing and then kind of went in the gym, experienced it myself. And uh, Mike mentioned some SFR kind of, uh, kind of feeling that out. And I've done the same with some of this partial range of motion and like I'm, I'm, I'm sold at this point and uh, I guess I'm waiting for Milo to produce something like partial range of motion program but full gains I don't know something like this uh, to kind of sell out at some point but I, I'm glad you mentioned that in terms of we're, we're all team science and trying to get to the, the root and it's not like I don't know everyone had to go at people like Brad Schoenfeld for his like the studies coming out on volume and saying he was like a shill for volume whatever like a joke but this is what people sometimes think they're everyone's after just getting jacked so I know Mike has maybe something to say, and you have questions too. So nope. I was going to pass I'm, your way anyway. I'm, my law our lawyer at RP advises me not to say anything on this topic. Please continue. <laughs> All I'll say is it's not a lot of people that had a go. It is <laughs> few people that had a go. But I will now. 
But did you have, did anyone else have anything to add? Or shall we, I, I can actually pass it to Mike. You had some specific questions you wanted to ask. And I think that'd be really interesting. Yeah. Is that cool? All of course, right. Mike. Let's go for it. All right. So uh, this is a combination of questions and thoughts of mine that I would love to get some reactions to. I think that the number one concern of mine with this is that it's a hot new topic with, uh, let's call it fewer than 10 studies. And what we don't want to do is, and I guarantee you no one's going to disagree with this on this podcast, is overstate our claim too early and have to patter back because it does a disservice to science and science communication. Um, we did this thing with so many times, and mostly not scientific people, but people in research community definitely contributed to some extent. You know, like coconut oil had like one good study about it, then nine bad studies, and then everyone was drinking coconut oil halfway through. And I was like, well, actually, stop doing that. It's not good for you. And they're like, but I thought it was great. So it's very tempting to say, look, partials are everything. Bolram is stupid. Let's let's get into length and partials only. And if you're not doing that, you're an idiot. Like you guys aren't saying that. Uh, and I just want to make sure that what we do is have that caveat, which is normally like just fodder and pointless to say, but more research needed. In this case, we really do need more research because another five or 10 studies would start to really paint a more clear picture. And I think that's important for folks to hear so that you don't make the mistake of being one of these Instagram people that makes like partial lengthening program, you know, buy my program now, partial length, you know, length of partials or everything. And then six months later, when a couple of research studies come out be like, ah, it's actually more nuanced than that. It turns out it's not for all the muscles. It turns out there's regional hypertrophy differences. It turns out that full ROM is roughly equivalent in, in many other cases that you don't have to backpedal and say, well, okay, actually, sorry, I just got really carried away. And I know that Milo and Pack are not doing that, but I want to make sure anyone who's listening to this hears at least that take of like, guys, like science is dirty when it's in process. And there is much more nuance and uh, lack of clarity than it may seem based on a few studies and that everyone's talking about, you know. What do you guys yeah. think about that? Yeah, no, I agree for sure. I think there have been a lot of cases, like you mentioned, where the first few studies in the body of literature can turn out to seem very positive, right? Especially when it comes to supplementation research. I can think of... Uh, Diasporic acid, for example, for testosterone boosting. Yeah. Uh, I can think of some other citrulline one. Citrulline malate. Indeed, citrulline malate as well. Um, with range of motion, I think there is a case to be made that it's not like, of course, there are four studies, so it's not like we're, we have the answers yet, you know. Um, but I'm talking about four studies that are directly comparing length and partials to full range of motion. There's a couple of reasons why I'm relatively hopeful with regards to how well this a, extrapolates to a variety of muscle groups, and B, how accurate of a finding it is, like whether or not it'll hold up in more and more studies. The first reason is, it does seem like there's a kind of dose-response relationship, wherein if you compare shorter muscle length training to longer muscle length training, longer muscle length training tends to win out for hypertrophy. Likewise, though, if you compare full range of motion training to shorter muscle length training, that also seems to hold true. So it kind of seems like when repetitions are performed at very short muscle lengths, doing a full range of motion or training on average at longer muscle lengths than that is better for hypertrophy. 
but then comparing length and partials or even lower muscle lengths to a full range of motion, that also seems to be better than a full range of motion. So it seems like not linearly, I'm not for sure claiming that it's linear, but I'm saying that it seems to be like, well, shorter muscle length training or shorter muscle length partials seem to be worse for hypertrophy. Then full range of motion seems to be better. And then length and partials seem to be better than full range of motion. That seems to be the kind of trend, right? So it's quite a linear and quite a, a pleasing um, way to explain things. And I think the fact that it's that consistent, that it's, you know, shorter muscle length training tends to do the worst, then full range of motion, then lengthened work. That's very, um, to me, that's support for the fact that there may be something to this mechanistically and in terms of supporting those findings more broadly than just the four studies we have directly comparing length and partials to a full range of motion. And then the second thing is more broadly speaking, while again, we only have four studies comparing a full range of motion to length and partials and measuring hypertrophy, we do have evidence from a variety of adjacent bodies of evidence looking at the same concept, broadly speaking, of longer versus shorter muscle length training. Now, I want to preface that that isn't exactly what people do in the gym. So you don't want to take this evidence and say, well, that's super strong support for the fact that length and partials are better than full range of motion. But it does generally lend support to the sort of proof of concept that longer muscle length training and potentially length and partials as an application of that concept is a good thing for hypertrophy. And that comes from, I believe, we have eight studies now looking at partial repetitions at shorter versus longer muscle lengths, generally very consistent that longer muscle length partials or better than shorter muscle length partials. We have five studies comparing isometric contractions at longer or shorter muscle lengths. Again, super consistent findings for hypertrophy where longer muscle length training is better. Um, mechanistically, we're starting to have some potential ideas very tentatively of why longer muscle length training may be better for hypertrophy. Um, we even have some regional hypertrophy data looking at that. So it's not just the four studies. It's the fact that it's a seemingly dose-response relationship between the muscle length being trained and the hypertrophy effect gained from it. And it's the fact that we have evidence from a variety of sort of adjacent literatures besides just these four studies directly looking at it. And finally, the fact that amongst these four studies, rarely do you see, you know, if you conduct a dozen studies on a topic, rarely do you see that all 12 of them will show a positive effect of an intervention. You will have some false negatives, some false positives, like you'll have a variety of outcomes if, if you conduct enough studies. But the fact that amongst these four studies, three of them did find a benefit in favor of length and partials, and one found no difference between full range of motion and length and partials for hypertrophy, to me, that's pretty promising and pretty hopeful. Um, but certainly, there's been plenty of cases where when only one or two studies are out, you, you have to be a bit more um, skeptical of you know putting all your money with that specific intervention or supplement. Yeah. Um... Milo, what is your take on the following potential criticism of that body of research? That the typical sites, especially of ultrasound measurement that are used in all sorts of training are ones that are more distal on the muscle. And that's precisely what we would expect from prior research for longer muscle length hypertrophy areas to be most targeted by. And that we haven't been doing due diligence in examining whole muscle regional hypertrophy differences, and that there's a potential that while the magnitude of muscle growth at the very distal ends of the muscle where they're usually being measured for length and partials is absolutely superior to everything else, that maybe there is a superiority of overall hypertrophy from um, 
both ranges of motion, top and bottom end, and maybe even a superiority of hypertrophy at the proximal end of the muscle with peak contraction kind of work. I've heard this presupposed before, and I've seen some not so great literature for it before, but I'm curious as to what your take on that, or do you find that the the assessment of hypertrophy at long muscle length research, the assessment methods were holistic enough for you to say, no, it's actually pretty much all of the muscle that's growing. And yes, while more of it than expected grows at the distal end, overall, even at the proximal end and through the mid-range of the muscle, we still have more robust growth with a length of partials than we do with well, full range of motion training and with peak contraction stuff. Sure. There absolutely could be a point there. What I'll say is that, so the four studies on length and partials versus full range of motion that have been conducted did all use ultrasound. There have been a variety of sites that have been looked at. Now, generally, the literature does kind of bias a little bit towards more distal sites. So, for example, in, in some of my studies and the studies that exist on length and partials versus full range of motion, generally, the most proximal site you'll see is about 40% of muscle length, which is just slightly proximal, but not super proximal, right? Like, it's you could be at 20%, 30% as well. Um, whereas you do get more distal sites, like 60% and 70%. So there is a very slight bias in favor of more distal measurement sites, at least in this literature. What's worth keeping in mind, though, in terms of the broader proof of concept of longer muscle length training is beneficial for hypertrophy, is that when you zoom out and look at the full range of motion versus partial range of motion literature, or the partial range of motion at different muscle length literature, oftentimes they didn't actually use ultrasound. Ultrasound is for sure a common measurement method, but it isn't the one always used. And there are cases where, for example, in the Kubo study on squats, they used um, MRI and they looked at overall muscle volumes. And even there, you see that long muscle length training, for example, was better for the glutes, for the adductors, um, for the quads, well, not actually for the quads in this case, but for most hip extensors, it was better than doing a shallow squat. And so even in investigations or examinations of longer versus shorter muscle length training that looked at either whole muscle hypertrophy or that looked at um, more proximal sites as well, it does seem like there is, as you said, um, in my view, longer muscle length training predominantly creates more hypertrophy at more distal measurement sites. At more proximal sites, it seems like it's either pretty much the same as shorter muscle length training or sometimes slightly better. So in my view, the more distal the measurement site, the greater the impact of longer muscle length training. And it's possible that the difference in overall muscle hypertrophy that stems from longer muscle length training and potentially from length and partials stems specifically from greater distal hypertrophy and not so much, or maybe just a little bit from proximal hypertrophy. And that's kind of my, my view of the literature. Um, I think we do have some support for the fact that uh, proximally you do see similar or greater hypertrophy for lengthened partials or shortened partials or for range of motion. But I think that is definitely a weaker case to be made than uh, the case that lengthened partials or lower muscle length training is better for the whole muscle or for more distal sites. That's really insightful. Thank you so much for that. Um, Steve, is it okay if I ask a few more questions? Yeah, I was only thinking, I guess the would the only implication there be, I might be thinking too far, but in terms of distal and proximal, is if you already had, as a bodybuilder, like enough distal growth and you're just like, man, I don't need that part bigger. So I'm not going to use, let's say, length and partials of the thing for like the king for hypertrophy. I'm going to use like short range of motion lifts because I need that proximal part to grow. I guess that's a one of the potential avenues that could go down. I personally think that is potentially a thing. 
but I think it plays more to the advantage of length and partials even more because I can think of a few muscles in which you want the proximal part to grow more than the distal. Perhaps when you're doing um, something like, you know, your your pectoralis pec deck machine and you want real inner pecs, there may be something to holding the P contraction and only coming here and holding the P contraction. But generally for most muscles, if you think about it, an exaggerated distal component is actually just much more prized than bodybuilding. You don't want hams that bunch up into your glutes. You want hanging hams. You want big teardrop quads that are huge towards the ends of the knees and taper up as the leg goes. You don't want upside down pyramid quads that look terrible. Biceps, you want as further as far down the muscle as possible. The tricep sweep, you want it big right at the end. You know, you actually want it really small, right? When when it comes to the delt, because then it gets this huge bubble muscle illusion. Delts, everything, almost every muscle I can think of preferentially distal hypertrophy is actually superior for physique development and so if you want like weird powerlifter looking bunched up muscles that you don't look jacked and you pull off your t-shirt like that yeah, this guy's jacked but it kind of looks strange i think biasing for the distal is even a bigger deal so when guys talk about the peak contraction a lot because they're like well regional hypertrophy i'm like you want to look bunched up and like no why the hell are you doing that so yeah, i think for almost all muscles to me it seems that the partial ratios of motion or at least accentuating the stretch uh i think is even more wise if you consider that what do you guys think about that yeah i, guess no, I didn't sure. really i didn't take the the second stage of my comment <laughs> into consideration and thought about the proximal and distal so yeah it's very rare that someone needs <laughs> you know, I, th I think it happens like well the pecs said. i think inner pecs i mean i think yeah. maybe maybe there's a use case there but no, Sorry, for sure. Marley. I think that ultimately, because lengthened work or a full range of motion in some cases leads to seemingly reasonably uniform hypertrophy across the whole muscle, most of the time you won't have any super glaring weak points, even just doing lengthened partials or doing full range of motion. Um, so, generally, I'm not sure how much of a use I see for shortened partials, for example, as a means of addressing more proximal hypertrophy or a proximal weakness in a muscle group. Um, and certainly, that would be kind of hard to diagnose in some ways like i've never really looked at the physique and been like wow that guy really needs more proximal triceps you know like it's not really a thing oftentimes but um who knows maybe if more evidence comes out and it's something that people really want to play around with could be a could be a use for it i suppose yeah but it's it's important that it's it's framed that way the way that my is framed it versus some of the the comments that i've been seeing out there where it's like they're phrased in a way um that it seems like there's a ton of evidence uh, showing that oh there's going to be a different original hypertrophy if you do short uh, uh, partial ranges of motion at the short lengths or anything like that sure it is a potential potential minor concern i guess um and something to think of but um it's not like we've been seeing favorable muscle growth from short uh, muscle length training in general uh which i think would put that concern to them in the minor category versus oh yeah but huge ca uh, caveat for sure yeah awesome yeah mike you had some more questions let's get to those yes so I'm wondering how, if there's any curiosity from you guys on seeing literature examining the following, comparing full range of motion to partial range of motion to a full range of motion where the individuals are 
cued in to drastically slow the load down in the bottom half or bottom third and take a deep one to three second pause at the stretch under load and then come back up to a full range lockout, for example, and then really accentuate the bottom position. Because as far as I see it, the there are two potential downsides, really one, but two if you really expand the scope of length and partials. One is that for athletic purposes, it's probably good to go through a full range of motion so you can be competent and strong in full range of motion. I don't think that's going anywhere. Um, not really an argument against that. Uh, but the big one to me is it's uh, oftentimes very difficult to track performance and track the imposition of a stimulant. Stimulant, good God, stimulus. Stimulant imposition, so easy to track. Uh, how many Adderalls have I mixed into my drink? Um, Steve, you'd know about that. I'm kidding. I always like to accuse Steve of very illicit activities, which I know for a fact he's never done or considered. Um, so, right. So, um, like if you're doing a leg curl, that's halfway up and you're not touching your, the pad to your butt, how do you know if it was 14 repetitions that you got or 13? How do you know when you've passed whatever arbitrary limit you've set on what is considered a partial and what is considered full range of motion? Uh, in many exercises, this presents itself as a problem and, uh, the, tracking is not as important as the imposition of a stimulus because you're there to get the stimulus the tracking is a second thought but it nonetheless is curious and if we could potentially find a method of training that combined the best of three worlds world number one is the imposition of most of the tension at longer muscle lengths which seems to have a ton of validity behind it two is the ability to track the stimulus very well with a full range of motion and three is to be able to at least theoretically check off the boxes of, well, we're not skipping the, the top third or top half, and there's some regional hypertrophy benefits that could hypothetically, and some motor units may be active in that range, and different parts of the muscle may engage that don't typically engage. So if we were, I would be very curious, and I was wondering if, if you guys would be too, in studies that compared partials, full ROM, and then accentuated bottom full ROM, where the top lockout's like, bloop, and then the rest is huge stretch, big stretch, big stretch, and come on, bloop, and then real full stretch, full stretch. There is another benefit potentially to that, and it's this. In many exercises, the top part of the range of motion is like annoying and uh, saps a lot of your energy, which leads to a problem with um, the stimulus to fatigue ratio degrades if you do that top third because you spend a lot of fatigue on that top third, but yield very little stimulus. So you could have gotten 12 high quality partial reps in a bent row, but because you insist on pulling all the way to your stomach every time, you got eight reps with the same weight and you pissed away a ton of fatigue. And those are four reps that are really hypertrophic. You'll never get back. Like that, that part I do understand. But in some lifts, like let's say a leg press or a hack squat, the top lockout, you can actually lock your knees out and rest. And thus it buys you more repetitions during the set. And if you don't spend a lot of your energy on the lockout, which you kind of never do because it's the easiest part of the lift, maybe there's a situation in which you can go down and do the full range of motion, really accentuating that bottom part, going to a full lockout, resting for a second, and then coming down, or going almost lockout, coming back down for four or five reps, then locking out and resting. I was wondering if that combination of full and partial, like a 
a long muscle length accentuated full ROM approach to training can maybe solve a lot of problems for us and compare favorably on hypertrophy to just partials. What do you guys think about that? Do you not see the progress you would like? Are you sick of writing your own programs? Or perhaps you need some accountability in order to stick with the plan? Then it's time to start working with us. We at Revive Stronger offer a truly personalized coaching service. You'll get more than just an email with some macros or random cookie cutter program. With Revive Stronger, you will be the center of our attention. You will receive your own fully individualized training protocol alongside a customized nutritional strategy. We created the coaching around your needs, wants, personal preferences, and your own unique lifestyle. Every single week, we delve into your program in order to make appropriate adjustments so that we get the most out of your time and the best possible outcome. We help both female and male athletes to seriously change their body composition by adding more muscle mass and decreasing fat tissue. No matter if you're a competitive bodybuilder or just want to look better, if you need help with your progress and taking your physique to the next level, our coaching is for you. It's time to make a change, sign up today and let's revive stronger. Do you have something to say you want to say first talk? Um, I'll let you start and then I'll, I'll continue at the end. For sure. So you touched on a lot of things, Mike. Um, I'll take them point by point. The first one was an idea for a study where, again, four range of motion versus four range of motion, but really accentuating with stretch versus length and partials. And that's for sure an interesting study design. The, that would be really informative as far as how people would train the real world, right? Because for example, how I see you applying the length and research is kind of in that four range of motion plus accentuated stretch way. So it'd be interesting to see whether there's any benefit of that over full range of motion, or if it's as good as length and partials or better or what have you. Um, from kind of a research perspective, I think that's a question that we kind of should answer later down the line. First, I'd like for us to establish more uh, robustly whether length and partials are a good tool for hypertrophy. And I think then we can definitely address that to see if maybe you, know, you can get the same hypertrophy from a full range of motion if you accentuate the stretch. Um, the, for the time being though, I think the issue with taking that approach is that it's kind of a, somewhat of a misapplication of the research, right? If you're looking at the research comparing full range of motion to length and partials, and the tempo wasn't like in the full range of motion condition or in the length and partial condition, wasn't really modified to be a certain way. The most direct way of applying those findings that length and partials appear to be potentially better for hypertrophy is to actually do length and partials. Whether a full range of motion with an accentuated stretch is better for hypertrophy than length and partials, we really couldn't say. We couldn't even say if it's better than a full range of motion period, because we don't have any direct evidence on that. It stands to reason, and I think it's worth experimenting with. But if you think it's worth experimenting with, I think you should also think that length and partials are worth experimenting with in general, right? Like that's sort of, that's the same train of thought, or at least it hopefully should be. Obviously, there's cases where if hypertrophy isn't your main goal or your only goal, then maybe you want a full range of motion for other reasons, like you mentioned. So that kind of segues me into the next point, which was that you kind of see two main pitfalls with length and partials, or from the sounds of things, more so partial range of motion in general, which is fair enough. The first one is for athletic purposes, and where you mentioned that a full range of motion might be better. Now, I'm assuming that that is mostly for carryover purposes, so how well lifting then carries over or transfers to more athletic performances, like in, in your sports, whatever you want. Now, the important thing to note is that for all the performance outcomes that the studies have looked at, and those included stuff like sprinting, like jumping, like a lot of athletic outcomes as well, like Wingate tests as well, or cycle tests rather, cycle sprint tests. Specificity was still key, which meant that actually a full range of motion didn't lead to the best outcomes necessarily in 
um, sport outcomes or power outcomes or strength outcomes. It was more so the case that if you wanted to optimize adaptations in a certain outcome, like a sport outcome, you actually wanted to be specific with your range of motion, which means if your sport doesn't involve a full range of motion or a lot of joint angles, you probably shouldn't really train for a full range of motion, potentially at least, um, at least from a carryover or transfer perspective over the course of these studies, right? Like that could be only applicable for 12 weeks or what have you, but it does seem to be the case that if you want to maximize adaptations in terms of carryover, you should still be specific in terms of range of motion and the full range of motion may actually not be the best in that case. The second thing you brought up was performance tracking or essentially assessing performance week to week. Now, uh, there are kind of a few rebuttals I have in mind here. The first one is we recently started a study. I'm not sure if you saw it. We've shared it around Instagram. We're doing a study comparing lengthened partials or half the full range of motion in the fully stressed position compared to full range of motion across a full training program for eight weeks, training the upper body three days a week, kind of in the context of what you would typically do in the gym, you know, 10 to 12 sets a week per muscle group, close to failure, et cetera, et cetera. And as part of that study, we performed something called um, reliability testing. And at least in the limited data set that we had, it didn't seem like um, it didn't seem like people got wildly different number of reps at a given weight from session to session when going to failure, right? When doing lengthened partials. So when they came in one week and we told them, hey, do as many reps as you can for as much weight as you can for lengthened partials, you know, six reps on the pull down, six reps on the dumbbell press, six reps on push downs, et cetera, um, and providing video evidence. Week to week, when they came in in the same circumstances, they got very similar numbers and reps with similar technique. So it seems like actually, as far as tracking goes, at least in this context, when people are told, you know, go to failure uh, with this rep range, with this sort of stuff, people are actually pretty consistent and their performance is very predictable. So that means that week to week, if you wanted to make sure you're progressing and or make sure you're training hard enough, you could do so with partials, at least with lengthened partials in the context of this study. Now, I'm not going to say that that's definitely the case everywhere, but from my own personal practical experience and from some of my clients as well, for a lot of exercises, there is a landmark you can use or a sort of joint position you can use to pretty consistently standardize range of motion for machines that might be a certain point that you can pull to. Like, for example, I was training with Steve Hall a few weeks ago, actually, and we were doing machine rows, and uh, there's a certain sort of feature of the machine that you can pull onto, and then that's kind of half the range of motion. And so you can visually see, okay, I've pulled into this point, now I can back it down, and we have performed roughly half the range of motion in the length and range. Um, and so for a lot of exercises, that's sort of a feature of the machine that you can pull to, or you can lift until your elbow, for example, reaches an angle of about 90 degrees. And that, at least in my experience, meant performance was pretty consistent week to week, and in my client's experience, and wasn't really too variable, and hopefully was consistent enough to allow for an effective training stimulus. Because ultimately, that's what this is about. It's not really about um, being super, super granular, super uh, detail-obsessed. It's more so about ultimately using a range of motion that will allow for the greatest training stimulus. It's more so tracking performance and assessing performance is more so an aspect of training hygiene, I'd say, than directly imposing a better stimulus. And progressive what is training hygiene? By training hygiene, I mean stuff like being able to assess performance over time to see whether or not what you're doing is working. Like it's not really directly helping you create more stimulus, although it is in the fact that you're planning over time, like longer term. But if you're in the right ballpark, you know, if, even if it's not perfectly reliable, you'll still be able to tell whether or not you're stronger. And so my point is that it's more so training hygiene and then ultimately progressive overload should or kind of improving performance over time should almost be a result of imposing a good stimulus over time and time and time again. And as provided we're having a reasonably reliable tool to assess performance, 
that will kind of happen naturally, right? I don't think we need to be super, super precise. And certainly from what I've seen, both in the studies we're doing and my personal experience, my coaching experience, people tend to be accurate enough. So I think the more, um, the more well-founded concern of, well, what's actually better for hypertrophy? Is it a length and partial? Is it a four range of motion? I think that takes a lot of precedence over, oh, can we perfectly accurately assess um, performance? Because ultimately with four range of motion as well, you have to keep in mind range of motion, like a full range of motion may actually change week to week. You know, you might be stiff one week, you might not be stiff next week, you might be injured. I know it's often the assumption that a full range of motion is perfectly static and perfectly replicable week to week, but sometimes it also won't be. Um, and that's not necessarily a criticism against full range of motion. It's more acknowledgement of, okay, well, actually there is that limitation, albeit to a lesser extent, even for full range of motion. And I don't think it's a huge caveat or a huge issue, to be honest. Yeah. And just, just to double down on that last point, even the literature, the definition of full uh, range of motion is sometimes, sometimes different. And it's important when, when we communicate, uh, the current state of the literature that we are organized in a pyramid-like fashion where we understand what's really important for hypertrophy or strength long-term versus some of the minor details. And I mean, even if we look at the, the data on periodization and hypertrophy, the, the, the formal literature, although the definition of periodization is different to what we sometimes use in the field, doesn't show much of an effect for, for hypertrophy. And more specifically for tracking performance, over time and meticulously tracking it, assuming that there is some tracking going on, it's not like we have any data to suggest that more meticulous tracking will necessarily lead to better gains. Obviously, in the context of you guys, you guys are competitive bodybuilders and people that dedicate a lot of time and resources to to your sport. So that's different. And I understand that uh, 100% or like as close to 100% mentality goes, then that's fine. But for the average listener who's just trying to grow some muscle, even if they go in one week and their partials are slightly less partial than the previous week, as long as they're progressing over time, even if they're not necessarily tracking them meticulously, I doubt, and that goes beyond just, just partials, I doubt that they would see any uh, substantial differences in, in muscle growth. You mentioned that there we don't have research on the yield of tracking. That was supposed to make a point, and that point was what? The meticulous uh, level of tracking. So I often work with um, individuals who track a plethora of variables and try to track every single set or every single variation in technique from set to set, as well as make notes on whether they rested um, slightly more between the last two reps of a particular exercise. And as it stands, we don't have any data showing that that level of tracking offers any benefit to just making sure you're in the right ballpark as far as reps and rep cadence goes obviously without any uh, extremes so because we don't have any data on it what are we supposed to conclude about the practice we are not supposed to so we have data on studies that take individuals and put them through resistance training protocols and they follow a specific amount of reps but they're not meticulously tracking every single variable so the idea that the closer you track or the more meticulously you, you track training the more gains you get over time sure makes sense intuitively but at the same time it's not necessarily evidence-based 
Yeah, and just real quick, as far as stimulus itself at least is concerned, if we acknowledge that range of motion when viewed in quite dichotomous ways or quite extreme ways, like full range of motion or partial range of motion, which is like oftentimes a magnitude of difference of partial range of motion is half the full range of motion, it's like a twofold difference in range of motion, right? If we acknowledge that a twofold difference in range of motion has a relatively small impact ultimately on hypertrophy, a slight fluctuation week to week of maybe, let's say, you know, let's go crazy, let's say 20% of 0.2 in range of motion week to week likely won't have any measurable difference in terms of the stimulus that it provides an individual with. So at least as far as importing stimulus to an individual, slight variations in range of motion week to week won't make a difference. That's why to me, standardization and tracking it super precisely is more of a concern as far as training hygiene is concerned and tracking over a long term. But there's other ways of tracking progress anyways. So it's not like just because this one variable is slightly worse, that's a huge criticism of a, an approach or an intervention or what have you. So that's kind of how I view it. Going briefly back to the buying you more repetitions um, concept, I think that's a good point. And certainly from my own personal experience, uh, when I cut out the shortened part of a lift, like for example, as you mentioned, um, the leg press or what have you, when I cut out the top part of the lift or the easier part of the lift oftentimes, it did mean that I got fewer repetitions because it cuts out the part of the range of motion where you can kind of rest and recoup a little bit. And you mentioned that that might actually be a positive thing for hypertrophy, that you can get some rest at the top of each rep and thus get a better SFR or stimulus overall for the set, I guess. Um, the caveat I have there or the concern or the reservation I have is that the data we have most directly looking at that kind of concept, in essence, is the data on cluster sets and rest pause, right? Those are essentially the most direct studies we have on that concept of taking slight rest and then doing the set over a longer period of time, essentially. Um, and that data really isn't compelling as far as improving hypertrophy goes. So in my view, that's it could be the case that for certain individuals, it might do something. But at least on principle, I don't see that as being a compelling reason to use full range of motion over a partial range of motion. Back, what I was getting to before, Oh, yeah, sorry, just just to just to clarify on that, I'm not saying that tracking training overall doesn't make sense, but meticulously tracking many variables and which is something that we often see with a lot of new lifters that get into lifting by following us and looking at the scientific side of things and assuming that, oh, unless I track every and standardize every single uh, piece of uh, every single detail as far as my training goes, I want to make optimal gains. I just want to I just wanted to highlight that. We don't really have evidence for that. And if if anything, we have evidence to suggest that, hey, as long as you're doing the basics over time and you're progressing, you're still going to probably maximize growth. Yeah. Well, so I would say is we, I don't think we have evidence for the latter because almost all research evidence is on people who have trained for a preposterously short amount of time or are beginners and we get great gains anyway, no matter what they did. Most of the rest of the evidence is on people who've trained something like three years, and it's interesting for people who've trained three years, but not so interesting for people who've trained longer. And back when I was trying to get it earlier, is I, I agree with almost everything you're saying, but the weight of a statement that we don't have evidence for this is, is just not a lot of weight behind that statement because it borders on committing the um, absence of evidence fallacy. Because we don't have evidence for something, it is not a refutation of that something. It actually means there's a question mark where the evidence is. And if you, then you have to use indirect evidence to reason your way to it. And if the indirect reasoning is very compelling, then it's still your best bet, even if there's no evidence to it. Just because we don't have evidence to something is not a refutation of that something at all. It is just to say that the formal evidence has not weighed in. So I just 
basically wanted to express that criticism of your criticism. We're getting into the weeds here today. That saying that uh, that we, because we don't have evidence for something uh, is not a refutation of that something. It is just to say that we don't have evidence for it that is direct, but perhaps on logical and, and, and recent grounds, we have a lot of reason to suspect that it does have some sort of benefit. And I'm not saying in this case, meticulous tracking is some sort of benefit, just tracking in general. I'll also say something else, that for uh, the lifters that have been training a long time, uh, pretty good tracking doesn't cut it anymore because you can go for two years with pretty good tracking and see no gains. You would have to get pretty meticulous to see gains at all because the gains are so small. And selecting which modality gives you a small percent of your gains versus gives you no percent or an even smaller percent of your gains may come down to more meticulous tracking because tracking gains in people who have been training for 16 weeks total or tracking gains in people who have been training for three years and 16 weeks total is preposterously easy because they make huge magnitude gains relative to their starting points. People who have been training for a long time may need a little bit more meticulous tracking in order to get a good handle on their training because the margins of gain differences can be so small uh, so uh, just as a concern, but I, I generally think you guys made excellent points all around and that absolutely the imposition of a stimulus is way, way, way more important than your ability to track it. And you can actually get pretty creative with how you track it. I think this is more of a, if you're going to try length of partials training, try your best to have some standardization uh, and don't just go and do length and partials and question mark how much range of motion you're getting because you're going to also want to know how much range of motion you're doing for the future to see if you can modify it. Because if you have length and partials, it's like, oh, I just did length and partials and they worked better. Maybe you can reduce the range of motion and make it even more partial, it would be better. Or maybe if you made it a little less partial, it could be better. 30 degrees versus 60 degrees or something like that. If it's all same, same to you and you haven't been meticulous in your own training, at least to some extent, in standardizing, trying to standardize the range of motion, you could be missing out on even more length and partial gains than you have because you simply filed everything under length and partial and didn't bother to try to replicate. So that's kind of my big point there. I just, I, I just wanted to ask back on on the on the point of more experienced individuals needing more meticulous tracking. How would they be able to separate the signal from noise given the multitude of variables? that play a role in, in in hypertrophy and other variables that are exogenous to training like stress, sleep, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, and how would they be able to separate that from just time being what actually led to more gains? And how are they really assessing um, muscle gain? So like a, an experienced bodybuilder, unless we're talking about introducing PDs or some ex exceptional change, the, the muscle gains, especially for, for natural lifters after a specific point may come down to just visual visually being able to maybe see a slight difference here and there or peaking better for a competition versus actually using i don't know an ultrasound or an mri to assess hypertrophy so it's important that we word it in a way where sure it may help or at least give the um give some people the the idea that it's helping but I wouldn't be confident in saying that if you're more experienced, the more meticulously you track things, the more you're guaranteeing that you're going to succeed. Obviously, it's a spectrum, right? It's not, hey, YOLO, whatever, roll the dice, and we'll do rows today, or 
school, having an iPad and three uh, undergrad students behind you tracking your steps and how many breaths you take, you can still be relatively meticulous with tracking, but without losing your mind over whether your last hack squat uh, was uh, three seconds faster uh, on the last rep versus the previous week or whatever. Yeah, Just the signal, the signal to noise stuff, I think you try to minimize noise. And the concern with improperly executed partial reps that are not at least somewhat carefully uh, monitored for degree of range of motion, you're increasing the, the noise. And so the signal magnitude is roughly the same, but the noise you want to minimize. So I think that, of course, you need long time periods and you need to come back to the same exercises often. Uh, and then at that point, if you can do anything else in your training that reduces the noise, either doing full range of motion on some of, of the sets and some of the repetitions as a form of tracking plus good stimulus, and also uh, maybe uh, doing accentuated eccentrics, or maybe doing or accentuated bottom position eccentrics, or maybe doing partial lifts in, in the most meticulous, realistic way you can do them. I'm not saying just grow a neurotic disorder. I do know exactly the people that you were talking about. And, and to be clear, I think those are just neurotic people and they just do that anywhere they go. I don't think that's curiosity of beginner trainers. I don't think it's a curiosity of training. I think you just get like some actually legitimately neurotic people that will worry about anything and everything they can. And when they come in and they find out range of motion is a thing to worry about, they will worry about it. When you give them a tracker, they will worry about the tracker. I've seen people um, pride themselves on not being off by more than uh, five calories per day on my fitness pal. Like, oh, I believe you were mentally ill in the most compassionate way I can say that. <laughs> um, so, so I definitely hear you guys on that. There absolutely is the road to nowhere, I like to call it, where it's like, hey, you did all this tracking and you have nothing to show for it. Congratulations. So I, I totally see that. Um, and I, I think uh, I, I, I took all of your, uh, your points very well. On the issue of um, what we can derive from literature, uh milo i think i uh, i'd like to dive into that really really quick so you said that if we have some literature on full range of motion being effective to whatever extent we have some literature on length and partials uh to be you know, potentially even more by the way i did i do want to ask you as a side really quick before i continue um what is the mat what's the effect size on average of full rom versus length and partials do you have an, a rough average effect size Sure. I could give you the effect size that we derived during the meta-analysis that didn't include the last two studies, I believe. So it was only in two studies so far. And that was an effect size of about 0.3. And I think it's obviously grown since then because the two new studies that have come out were the calf study, I believe, and the, actually, no, only the calf study. So that largely, that likely inflated that effect size a little bit. So somewhere above 0.3. And that's qualified as just above the cutoff of small right into yep, moderate. Correct. 0.2 to 0 0.5 is small. 0 0.5 and yeah. above is moderate. So, yeah. Yes. Wildly arbitrary cutoff. But, uh, Indeed, the ones they made up. yes, literally make believe. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that helped. That helps to, to clarify the issue. So, when you're saying, like, do we have this research on length and partials and we have this research on full range of motion? We need just, if you want to apply the research, you should just do it as it's written. I do on the margins think there's an issue to bring up there. Um, the research that we have, uh, is indicating mechanistic relationships. And you cannot apply research to yourself. You can only apply insight to your own mechanics. And thus, if mechanistically what is happening is at long muscle lengths and at time spent generating tension at long muscle lengths, there is a distinct benefit. So that if you take a whole set, 
time at, uh, in a full range of motion set, the time spent contracting at long muscle lengths is this, time spent contracting at short is this. In a partials only, all of the time is spent here. In an accentuated situation where you rush through this part really quick and then really ease in and really even pause for a long time here, I think that you could have uh, 80 or 90% of your time spent at the, the length of position. And that mechanistically will have seemingly, very possibly a very, very similar effect because the time spent generating tension in those positions mechanistically is what's actually happening. Your, your body doesn't have an internal goniometer that it's like, as soon as it gets past this, activate growth. It does have uh, you know systems for uh, mechanotransduction and other things that upon experiencing certain ranges of motion and the tighten the nebulon stretching that occurs will start to fire up hypertrophy more. So I think it is actually potentially, especially for real world applications, totally valid to try to alter. So, so to me, it's, it's this, I, I, I take it as the following sort of my summary of what I've gotten out of this so far. And, and I can say a little more about this I maybe in a second, but is this full range of motion training is effective and safe and great. There is considerable evidence now for really one of two things. One is trying some partials at the bottom end in your training. I think that this, absolutely, if you're going to try anything new and you like an exercise that feels good for partials and seems to have a good SFR for you, absolutely try it, share a shit, probably it's going to work great. But to me, I take it even a step further that within the context of full range of motion, you should probably be biasing your movement to accentuate the bottom position more than if we had never seen this literature to begin with and just do a full range of motion where you bias the entire thing. I think because of the weight of the evidence of length and partials, you what the evidence is really for mechanistically is there's something pretty special happening in that bottom stretch. And that if you do a bench press where you're like, do one of these where you're like, you bounce off the chest, it's full round and a quick touch. And then you spend a lot of time locking out and you go, like technically speaking, if you train with a slingshot, you guys know the slingshot bench thing, it's technically full ROM, but I would say like you need the opposite of a slingshot. And and if you're going to do full ROM, the top had better be easy as shit and the bottom had better be hard as fuck. So I would say that mechanistically, I, it's, 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 um, I would say I, I'm not sure of the utility of doing black and white comparisons, and I'm not accusing you of this necessarily, of saying, well, look, we only have data on full and partial and that's what we should try in the gym. I think we can only ever extract physiological underlying hints from data. Because like, I'm not a, a British college student age 18 to 23. I'm not in that study group. I can only have the physiological realities apply to me. I can't even do the same protocol because technically, if you were to say, we've actually never researched this on any of the following other muscles, any of these exercises except for these exercises. So if you want to generalize the point, we actually can't generalize the point because it's only on maybe 16 exercises that have been tried. There's 600 other exercises, which we say, well, we haven't tried it on these exercises. We shouldn't do it because we make physiological inferences from one exercise to another and one muscle group to another, which I think we should. We can also make inferences from like, well, look, if we are doing a full range of motion, I think the weight of this evidence is that like we sure as shit should take some quality time in that bottom half or bottom third versus even just taking the same quality time all the way through. What would you say about that? For sure. I think you're on the right track. Like definitely. I think the reasoning that mechanistically what underpins the benefit of lower muscle length training is that you're spending more time and effort at lower muscle lengths. Absolutely. And so when comparing a full range of motion to uh, well, a full range of motion with no eccentric control at lower muscle lengths or with no pause at lower muscle lengths, et cetera, to a full range of motion when you, where you do those things, definitely the latter would be beneficial. 
Now, there's a couple things I'd say. The first is you do make a point that if you're not an 18 to 23 year old student, like the ones that take part in these studies, oftentimes some of these findings and some of these bodies of evidence may not directly apply to you. That's fair enough. That being said, if you have some understanding of the mechanism underlying these adaptations, which at this point, you just pointed out some of the mechanisms that I may play as to why long muscling training is better, and you don't have a very compelling reason as to why those wouldn't apply to you, you may just want to give some thought to thinking, oh, they probably generalize to me as well. Because ultimately, we don't conduct these studies in untrained people just for the fuck of it. You know, we conduct them because they're easier to conduct there. We get more people. We can see larger effect sizes. We can have a stronger proof of concept. And then in populations where that may or may not apply, like, for example, protein intake with the elderly, we actually conduct studies to see, oh, how does that apply in this population? Is there a difference? But unless you have a compelling mechanistic rationale as to why it wouldn't apply to you, I think if there's a solid amount of evidence, you can likely assume that it generalizes to you pretty well. Um, so that kind of brings me to my final point. If I was a gambler, oh, sorry, go for it. I totally agree. My only reason for bringing that up was saying, if we haven't studied accentuated full ROM at the length of, length and partial accentuated full ROM, by the way, just really quick, there is a decent body of evidence now that only stretching produces robust hypertrophy. And the body of literature is getting more impressive over time. And um, I would say that like, well, gee whiz, if you're going to do full range of motion and you're not getting a deep stretch, just kind of like the up and down full range of motion, and you're not even arching and getting a real deep stretch in there, maybe even pausing at the bottom, then you are missing out on theoretically potential good benefits that could also explain part of the variation as to why long muscle lengths work. Long muscle lengths may work because there was a stretch stimulus and, and potentially for no other reason. So if you get a big stretch, hey, maybe you're really checking all the boxes. The only reason I brought up the whole well, if you know, length and it's length and partials versus full ROM, and any accentuated BS is not something to try. It's because like if we start saying, well, it's this versus this, well, it's also these are undergrads, and I'm a steroid drug addicted bodybuilder. So we we have to. It's we only ever from basic research like this. We can only ever extract. And I think you and I are unanimously agreed on this. Just a bit of cross current communication. You only ever extract concepts. It's the concept of how much time do we spend in a muscle length? Okay, now do it for yourself. And un undergraduate research is absolutely very incisive. It's, it's at the very best, sorry, the very worst for bodybuilders at a high level. It's amazing hypothesis generating research. Whereas, like, you know, you can do all sorts of things in the gym. And now there's 10 studies on tiny undergraduate Harry Potter looking motherfuckers that say loaded stretching is good. I'm going to try it. I'm for sure going to fucking try it because maybe it won't work, but it probably will because we're all human at the end of the day. So I totally agree on that. That's just the only reason I pointed that out. Yeah, no, for sure. And the reason it's dichotomized in the research is because we're looking more so for proof of concept, right? Like we, we can't just look at PD using people in Detroit currently, you know? Uh, we have to kind of make broad dichotomies and um, try to get at the root of a concept and see what generally seems to hold true before we can get at the more specific things like, well, how about full range of motion, but with accentuated uh, eccentrics and lengthened range and pauses there. We can get at that eventually. And same with the sort of those response relationship between range of motion at lower muscle lengths and hypertrophy, like maybe, hey, maybe quarter reps are best, maybe half reps are best. We just don't know yet, right? We can get at that for later, sure. but for the time being, it's a simple dichotomy of partial or full. And not all partial reps are created equal, whether it comes down to partial reps at different muscle lengths or different amplitudes of range of motion that are partial reps. So I guess my closing thoughts here, if I was a gambler for the time being, and I wanted to get a return on my money, I would probably go with length and partials for hypertrophy. 
Then I'd go with a full range of motion with accentuated eccentrics and lower muscle lengths because the general mechanistic rationale underlying it does likely apply to that. We don't have any direct evidence, but as you said, like in the absence of evidence, some mechanistic thinking or rationale can help you at least hypothesize a little bit. I wouldn't say it's anywhere as strong of a of uh, evidence as direct evidence comparing length and partials to full range of motion. And that's why I'm inclined, if I was a gambler, for example, to just do length and partials, as that is the most direct application of the research comparing length and partials to full range of motion, right? That's the most direct way of applying it. Um, but I'd say a full range of motion with controlled eccentrics, especially down into the lengthened position, a pause in that stress position is my close second. And then my third option would be a full range of motion. And then my least likely option, if your main goal is hypertrophy, is partial range of motion in the shortened position. I think that's, at this point, difficult to defend unless you're looking for some hyper-specific regional adaptations that probably not many or anyone should be looking for. So I definitely wanted to riff on that. Miley, you said most of what I was going to say anything is kind of my closing thoughts on this. Um, I think that, that that I get at least uh, three things that I can say on this. So first of all, totally agreed that, um, you know, for me, I'm taking a more intentionally conservative stance because as a science communicator, I don't want to flip flop too much. And this is your, this is your horse to ride into battle on. So people ask me like, hey, like real talk, are Latham partials legit? I'm like, yeah, they're probably fucking legit. <laughs> uh, um, am I going to do a lot of them in my training? Not just yet because I don't want to wish wash and I want to be nice and sure. I have a really good thing going and uh, I will definitely uh, have already and for years actually been accentuating the eccentric in the bottom position because it was obvious the stimulus to fatigue ratio was better. Sort of now we know why. But uh, probably be incorporating more length and partials in the future myself uh, just to dip my toe in. So uh, super agreed on, on your hierarchy of likelihoods. What I will say is I want to put an extra special emphasis on that last point. And I have sort of three ways in which I can I caricature that. One is if you're doing with regular dumbbells and barbells, uh, something like a floor press, uh, you know, short of powerlifting application for lockouts, it's just a fucking terrible exercise as far as we know for hypertrophy. And there's a laundry list of exercises that are also fucking terrible that people do all the time that just may, may not thought through. There is uh, a slight caveat to that where some back exercises, there is some scapular retraction and arching that occurs at the top that actually activates different muscles that you want, like the rhomboids. So some of that still has utility, like cambered bar rowing hits your back in a different way than just the, 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 the top range, bottom range. So there's maybe some stuff to that. But for a lot of exercises, like when people do tricep extensions like this, it's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? At least do a full range of motion. If not, just stop in here and go here. A lot of people like ask me my opinion about what do you think about like rope extensions? Like the fucking worst exercise ever. And they're like, why? I'm like, I don't give a fuck about this. I care about this on the rope. You don't get any of that. So first of all, that. Second of all, machine designers. And I see this all the time. Uh, you're building machines. And if you're listening to this and you work for a machine manufacturer, do stop making machines that prevent you from going deep. At least have an adjustable pad that lets you go ultra deep on every single exercise. And two, probably preferentially bias the machine towards two things. One, having an eccentric in general that is 20% harder to do than the concentric if you're able to design that. And secondly, make sure that the bottom position is the hardest position at the very fucking least. Good God. Like there's so many pendulum that the pendulum squat as designed is hardest at the top and easiest at the bottom. It pains me. It's still a decent exercise for a variety of other things. Good God, what a giant shortcoming. And lastly, if you're tying bands around some shit, like bands around the hack squat, 
I think it just it's just wildly out of touch with literature and uh, what the fuck are you doing? So the era of to me, it's this so far with my intentionally purposefully way too conservative take, because I think you guys are right and like the partials are the future. But my personally conservative take being conservative is the following. If you're missing out on the deep stretch, you're fucking making a mistake. And there's not a lot of nuance there as far as I'm concerned. Just just this last part. Should you stop doing it? Should you just do this? likely but i'm not willing to go all in yet but if you are doing this instead of this fucking shit right here wow what mm. the fuck are you doing with stretch literature with the Langton partials literature with the forearm versus top end partial literature stimulus to fatigue everyone we bring tons of we train tons of pros in the rp channel you guys see that tons of bodybuilders we always we all, we're one trick pony at rp we take people and put them into lengthened partial positions they've never been in and they go oh my fucking god i've never felt my quads like that and it's like well, what the fuck have you been doing this whole time of course it was of course it was gonna hypertrophy you more you could have felt that in your own pumps and soreness from deep stretches and i think the time for those three things stop doing exercises that are intentionally partial at the at the top position uh, machine designers make fucking better machines. Prime machines are great, but they have those two other hooks that are pointless. You know, there's the three positions. I mean, just make the one with the stretch and that's it. Give me the rest. And then also, like, if you're putting bands on stuff and chains on stuff and your goal is hypertrophy, you just really have to think through what's going on. Jared and I filming for RP at like Dragon's Lair. There's so many times we have to rip the green band off the hack squat and be like, why is this here? And we know why it's here. It's because people like to lift. A lot more weight than they really can and they don't like to get humbled and also they've never properly vetted their techniques so their knees hurt at the bottom that's really mm -hmm. the only reason people do it they just make up a bunch of shit anyway but i figured i, I didn't want to let you guys go without a good old classic dr mike rant there you go steve as you're a, welcome as a, i don't know as a trainee at the our gym said when i asked him hey why the bands on the hackswood he said well, i don't know <laughs> Yeah, that's that. the most honest answer ever. I love that guy. I'm a new fan of his. Like, you're the man. Why even answer? You saw it somewhere. It looks, I don't know, curves, right? Am curves right? are great. Just just to be clear, um, just to throw a disclaimer out there for some of our previous discussions, these were not um, these were not directed directly at you, uh, Mike, as a criticism or anything, but rather it's it's I think very useful for the listeners and for the world out there to hear us have these discussions and have these back and forths where we sort of poke holes at each other's beliefs or whatever you want to call it and have to actually justify what we're saying because i was honestly as an individual and as a researcher curious to what you had to say not just about full versus partial ROM, but also about you know tracking and i'd love to talk to you about periodization as well for hypertrophy and so on and so forth so just just to make that clear I would love to keep this roundtable going about any any other subjects if you do it once every two months or something like that. And by the way, Pac, to be clear, first of all, like as human beings, I love all you guys. You guys are fucking. I'd great. say we we take it out there, but we don't. We cannot have guns in the UK, and you're much more proficient than martial arts, so we'll keep it in there. There we go. Uh, just to be clear, criticisms of me are totally awesome and always welcome. Uh, I accept all criticisms, including criticisms on being wrong about training. And also personal criticisms, criticisms like Mike is a piece of shit. I'm totally here for it. I would love to hear your criticisms. I, I thank you. So I, I understand where you're coming from on that caveat. But like, I, I'm not in the business of taking criticisms personally, unless they're meant personally. And then I'm also in the business of taking those. But like, you might get some personal criticisms back. And some people on the internet are quite upset about what I've said about them personally. 
So, you know what I mean? It's just, it's, it's were all they good. also like, totally bold? cool to criticize. <laughs> were they also bold with a beard? Because uh, I think the, those comments ring a bell. But geez, you know, there's so many people <laughs> that I'm in current online death wars with. Bald, not bald. I'm kidding. In any case, yeah, like I'm totally great with criticism. And I think if I'm saying stuff out there and you guys think I'm wrong, but 100% bring that criticism. I'm never going to be like, how dare you? I have full ROM tattooed on my face. <laughs> like it's all science all the way down. So if, if full ROM becomes something that is like an ancestral thing, that it's actually not optimal, then you will see me both stop doing full range of motion in most of my training outside of my jujitsu training, which I need that for because the positions, Milo, to your earlier point in sports specificity, the position in jujitsu is everything. So you have to like, if you're a yogi, you're even better at it. Uh, but as far as hypertrophy training, it's all just whatever whatever seems to be the best thing to do with the balance of evidence and reasoning. Awesome. Sure. Guys, I want to I know uh we're on a bit of a time budget here. Otherwise, I think we could keep talking for a long time. I have many thoughts going through my head and questions, but I, I think Milo and well, actually all of you closed it off really nicely with those kind of rounding comments and practical take-homes for the listeners. So I'm really glad we could do this. Mike mentioned every two months. I'm absolutely game for it. I think the listeners will be game for it. And so if everyone is, then uh, I'd, I'd love to do it again, surrounding other topics and just diving into things. And a uh, big respect to all of you guys uh, for, again, not taking things personally, looking at the science, kind of that is the way and uh, you're not getting distracted by any uh, unimportant other measures. And uh, yeah, thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys for being here and we'll catch you in the next one. Losing weight fast while maintaining muscle mass. Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? It isn't though, it's reality and we know how to do it and we will help you achieve this. The Minicup Movement is an eight week fat loss program to make you lose a huge chunk of fat while maintaining muscle mass at the same time. We will support you from the beginning to the end so that you see the results you would like to and come out of it much stronger. You'll receive a fully automated spreadsheet that is based on your nutritional needs. You can choose between six different male and female training templates. Over 30 videos will guide you through each and every single step of the minicut so that you're getting the most out of your journey and that you always know what to do. But the best thing is that you can start whenever you want. The minicut movement is open 24-7. So if you want to learn more or you're ready to sign up, hit the link in the description below. So let's revive stronger together.